and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. As our regular listeners know, I occasionally exercise co-host privilege and invite religion writing colleagues to the show to discuss their work. This week, my friend Emma Green joins us. Emma is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers politics and policy as well as religion. She spent a year reporting from Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, and in 2018 won the Religion News Association's first place award in religion news analysis. The following year, she swept those awards for her analysis, feature writing, and moving coverage of the massacre of 11 Jews in Pittsburgh. Most of Emma's reporting these days covers the intersection of religion and politics, which always plays a role in elections, as we saw in the most recent one. Her job is to explain that role. Emma, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So you have been quite busy in recent weeks covering this election, and you recently wrote an article, What Just Happened in Georgia. So, Emma, what just happened in Georgia? (laughs) Well, we see that after the results of a recount come back, almost certainly Joe Biden is going to have won the state of Georgia, which is going to be the first time since Bill Clinton that the state went blue in a presidential race. And more importantly, this is a state that had been considered solidly red, reliable for Republicans in terms of statewide offices, certainly national offices. And that change came as a surprise to many who hadn't been watching closely at what had been going on there. But I did some reporting in the lead up to the election, talked to people who had been very active in their communities, especially in the suburbs north of Atlanta, for the past four years, laying the groundwork for people who felt that their views were not being represented by the Republican Party, who felt that maybe they were more open to voting for Democrats, or who hadn't been that involved in politics at all, to really mount a blue wave, which is what we saw. And contrary to some of the other places around the country where Joe Biden did very well, but down-ballot races actually didn't go very well for Democrats, we actually saw that Democrats really performed strongly across races and unexpectedly well. This is from the very local level of Cobb County, the Board of Education, the Town Council, several state House and state Senate seats that all flipped for Democrats, up through Georgia's 7th Congressional District, which is one of the few pickups that Democrats had across the entire country. They did very poorly in other congressional races in battleground territories. And now we see the entire country is fixated on Georgia because the last two Senate seats that will determine the balance of the Senate, the control of the Senate, are going to be determined in Georgia as John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock were able to compete with their competitors, their Republican competitors, to a runoff. So this is a really banner year in Georgia that I think speaks to a transformation of our understanding of who the Georgia voter is, who's really active, and how the parties are going to think of that as a, a battleground state moving forward. You mentioned the Senate election, the Senate seats that are still up for grabs. And I've done some reading on the role Israel played in that particular race and their positions on Israel. Can you speak to that a little bit and, and whether or not you saw that coming ahead of the election? 
So I interviewed Raphael Warnock this summer, who is one of the two Democratic candidates for a Senate seat. He's running against the Republican Kelly Loeffler. He is the pastor of MLK's old pulpit. This is a huge, important pulpit in Atlanta. And he is also really active in a sort of religious left, progressive faith movement. He jokingly said to me that some of his biggest allies around the country are lesbian rabbis who have activated with him on various issues. And as a result of this, he's also been involved in trips to Israel, which progressive clergy often take to see some of the struggles with the Palestinian people. He signed on to a letter that indicated that he felt morally troubled by some of the injustices that he saw. And as a result, there's now a debate over whether he is someone who very much allies with a sort of lefty, progressive, almost BDS-friendly view on Israel, or whether he's someone who states his support for Israel, would vote in ways that would support funding for Israel in his role as a senator. He has come out since all of this has started to bubble up, especially in the Jewish press, saying, I am an ally of the Jewish people. I stand with Israel. I am pro-Israel. And I think it really speaks to the dynamics of this race that he's felt that that's so important because Atlanta has one of the largest Jewish populations in the country. It's one of the fastest growing in the country. And if you're talking about a race where 14,000 votes might actually make the difference, it's really important that he doesn't lose the support of the Jewish community over perceived distance on his position on Israel. So I think we're going to continue to see this in the race. It's also worth mentioning that his other Democratic Senate campaign buddy, John Ossoff, is Jewish. And so that would also introduce a sort of new flavor to Georgia's Senate delegation if he were to win. Mm -hmm. And where does Ossoff stand? I mean, just because he's Jewish doesn't mean that he's not aligned with some of the pastor's views as well. You know, I actually haven't looked as deeply into the way that this plays in the Ossoff race. I'm not sure that this has really emerged as a fracture line for him in the same way. But I do know that he is really keenly attuned to some of the issues of anti-Semitism that have been bubbling to the surface in Georgia. He accused his opponent, David Perdue, the current senator, of lengthening his nose in an ad that was put out before this November's election. Certainly, I think there are a lot of concerns about the bubble of anti-Semitism in North Georgia, where Marjorie Taylor Greene, who supports QAnon, is now the congressional representative. So there are all of these other aspects of Jewish identity that in this state that maybe we don't think of Judaism as being the front of the story, actually Jews are very much at the center of the news. I'm really glad you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what forces led to her victory. So she represents an area that is broad across the northern part of Georgia, and it's a very Republican area of Georgia. There's been a lot of really interesting journalism on her race and why it was that she was able to rally this kind of support. And I think, honestly, it has to do with ground game. She went to a lot of in-person events, even in COVID times, and had a lot of enthusiasm for her candidacy. You know, I'm not sure that the way the national media digests her candidacy is the same 
same way that people in North Georgia would, meaning there's been a lot of writing about the rise of QAnon and conspiracy theories, certainly the rise of right-wing personalities, which hers is one of those. She has a very loud and aggressive Twitter personality. But I'm not sure that people in Dalton or Norcross or some of these other towns in North Georgia really digest things in the same way. She is someone who stands for the kind of bullet list of the Republican Party, pro-life, pro-freedom, pro-gun. She supports President Trump 100%, and that's a part of Georgia that also does. So in a certain way, there could be a mismatch here between some of the fears that are being raised and surfaced in national media around the country and the way that somebody like her gets talked about actually on the ground. Mm -hmm. But are there any intonations or echoes of QAnon or anti-Semitism that is embedded in QAnon in that region of Georgia? You know, that's a tough question, and I don't want to generalize because my reporting has not been as much focused on that specific area. So I don't want to personally say, you know, I know for a fact they're all, you know, anti-Semitic or whatever. But what we know about anti-Semitism is that it is a powerful language that emerges in every generation that is basically a way for people to channel frustrations, a sense of alienation, a sense of suspicion, certainly about people in power. And her language, when she talks about George Soros coming into Georgia, Hollywood coming into Georgia and bankrolling the Democrats, those kinds of messages, I'm not sure that people necessarily know that those are anti-Semitic dog whistles, that what she's doing there is trying to spin a narrative that alludes to a sort of dark and shadowy force, which is the Jew, I'm not sure that people think of it that way. And so I think it's really complicated when you try to unpack what is in somebody's heart who's in North Georgia. You know, I think a lot of it is very much atmospheric and she is really masterful at tapping into that kind of conspiracy thinking that alludes to that dark looming Jew. I appreciate that thoughtful answer. I think that it is very complicated. I'm curious where else you found surprising outcomes or dynamics play out in this election, not just Georgia, but but where else? Well, I think one of the big headlines from this election is that we are still very much a divided country. It's looking like 70 million votes for President Trump and 74 million votes for President-elect Joe Biden. Those totals might change a little bit, but ultimately, on the one hand, is a very big popular vote lead for Joe Biden, but it also suggests that President Trump is really popular in a lot of places in the country. There were a lot of people who turned out very, very high turnouts on both sides of the ticket. And more broadly, we saw that there was a lot of ticket splitting, that in down-ballot races, there were people who didn't vote for Trump at the top. Maybe they went for Joe Biden or a third party, but then they voted for Republicans. In swing congressional districts, we saw Democrats all all over the country who had flipped seats in 2018 lose their seats to Republican competitors in Senate races that Democrats had been really, really hopeful that they were going to pick up, such as in Maine with Susan Collins. There was a ton of money poured into that state to try to flip that seat. And ultimately, she had a comfortable win. So I think what this suggests is that unlike some of the predictions that there was going to be a really big blue wave down the ticket on the back of President Trump's unpopularity. In fact, what we saw was a very engaged electorate from both parties and a lot of division over where the leadership of the country should go. And we're going to see that play out as President-elect Biden takes the helm in a very divided Washington. 
Can you talk a little bit about how your reporting has changed during the pandemic and how you did a lot of your campaign trail reporting leading up to the election? Well, I have to say, as a reporter, the best part of my job, hands down, is getting to go out and meet people and see stuff and just be out in the world. And that's very, very difficult with COVID. We have a lot of conversations among reporters and editors talking about whether a particular reporting trip is worth the risks. There's a ton of risk assessment for us, the reporters, and for our sources as well. And there's just a lot of thought put into whether it's worth worth it to step up that risk to expose us. Ultimately, I would say my editors have been very pragmatic, which is they believe that it's really important for reporters to go and see things themselves. And I tend to agree. I went to a campaign event in late October at a pavilion in a park in Sandy Springs, which is in those North Atlanta suburbs in the northern part of Fulton County. And I saw a bunch of women who had gotten together to do literature drops. They were weren't knocking doors because of COVID, but they were sort of stapling packets. And the conversations that we had there, the things I was able to see there, you just can't replicate when you're only reporting on the phone. But at the same time, I think it's so important for safety to be the number one concern. So that has really been weighing on our minds. And I think, you know, similar to the way that reporters have had to change what they do, we saw this year in politics fundamentally shifted as candidates had to figure out how to reach people and run for office without doing any kind of door knocking or ground game, especially on the Democratic side, like they would have in other years. Now, Emma, you wrote a lot about Amy Coney Barrett's nomination process to the Supreme Court, and much was made of the possibility of Biden packing the court. Is that a prospect we should anticipate? I don't think that that is going to be a plausible possibility for a few reasons. I do think it will continue to get airtime. I think it's something that people in the progressive flank of the Democratic Party are very invested in and have been talking about quite a bit. But there are a couple of reasons. The first is that President-elect Biden on the campaign trail has said that he is not a fan of the idea of court packing. Sort of notably, he and Kamala Harris, who is his vice president-elect, were a little bit dodgy on that question of whether they would try to pack the courts. They said, oh, you're changing the question, but sort of dodged that question themselves. He, when he was pinned down on it, kind of showed what I see as his true colors generally, which is he's not a guy who really is known for aggressive, you know, radical policy proposals. He tends to be a moderate. He tends to believe in compromise. He tends to believe in reaching across the aisle. And most importantly, he believes in the institutions that have been around for a long time, including in the Senate. So I don't think that he has an inclination to go down that route. The other really big reason is that the balance of the Senate is not going to be favorable to Democrats. I think in any scenario, of what happens in Georgia with these last two unresolved Senate seats, you're going to look at a very closely held Senate, no matter what happens. And I think generally those senators who kind of sit in the middle of their party, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, Joe Manchin of West Virginia on the Democratic side, these are people who are not inclined to blow up precedent and to go along with radical agendas, including things that are pretty unpopular, such as the idea of adding more justices to the Supreme Court. So I think what we're going to get in the next 
two years at least until we come to the 2022 midterms. Oh my gosh, I can't even believe that I just said that. (laughs) I think what we're going to see is a lot of haggling across the aisle, a lot of partisan gridlock, as they say, and maybe, maybe a lot of compromise. We'll see. Yes, we shall see. Okay, so I want to turn to your most recent story, which was about Andy Stanley, an evangelical megachurch pastor in Georgia, who ran afoul, caused a stir with some of his members by canceling in-person worship. And by doing so, they said buying into a particular political agenda. Your story goes much more in-depth than that. But it did prompt me to wonder if you've encountered that same dynamic in any Orthodox Jewish communities where leaders have canceled worship, canceled prayer, and members have thought, wait a second. Have you encountered that? So I think this is really challenging because there's been a range of reactions in the Orthodox world, which is large and diverse. There are always a range of reactions. You know, it will be really intuitive to this audience, but one big divide that we see in the Jewish world broadly and how clergy are handling this is the divide between congregations that use electronics on Shabbat and that are able to do Zoom services and that kind of offering, you know, anytime during the week and communities that don't use those electronics on Shabbat rely much more on in-person worship, perhaps have that weekly service as more of a linchpin of their community of what brings the lifeblood to their community. And so I do think that a lot of Orthodox communities that don't use electronics have been unwilling to do Zoom, Kabbalat, Shabbat after sundown or on Saturday morning. They have felt much more pressure to start meeting in person, Um, pressure from their membership, but also pressure from a religious point of view. I think there's been a pretty wide range in how rabbis from different parts of the Orthodox world have handled this. So on the one hand, you see modern Orthodox congregations, especially back in April, some of the modern Orthodox sort of councils or communities of rabbis in New Jersey and New York were some of the first to say, it's really important that you take health seriously. It's really important that we don't gather in person, important not to have Passover seders, and really taking those precautions to try to restructure their services so that they're limited limited, sometimes outdoors or sometimes limited number indoors. But there are also parts of Brooklyn where there are more Haredi communities that have not really adapted their services as much at all. So I think we see a real range. And honestly, one of the things that's fascinated me about this time is the amount of anger that I see from people who are parts of those worlds or run on the edge of those worlds, particularly in Brooklyn, who see what's happening in some of those communities and really feel that it's irresponsible, not just from a public health perspective, but from a religious perspective. One of the most stunning examples that I've seen of a community kind of turning on itself is the Jewish insider reporter, Jacob Kornbluh, who went to report on some of the protests that were happening that were kind of pro-Trump and pro-opening protests from some Haredi Jews in Brooklyn. And they literally chased him to his door and tried to break into his apartment, which is terrifying. He's a terrific reporter and just a total professional, he's also a part of that community. So I think we're seeing in the Orthodox world a sort of mini play of how charged this is and how divided the Orthodox world can be. It's not just one sort of uniform reaction. There really is a lot of division. You know, I think fundamentally my big lesson from religion reporting is that it's 
always useless to say evangelicals think this, Orthodox Jews think this, because within those giant worlds, there are always people who disagree and who disagree ferociously, especially on issues like this, about what their faith calls them to do and what's right for their community. The transition from religion reporting to politics reporting, is it really that different, Emma? (laughs) You know, I always say that religion is the best door to walk through to talk about any story, and that includes politics story, because ultimately what we're talking about, what we're reporting on is groups of people trying to figure out who they are, what principles unite them, and how to govern themselves, what things are going to be tolerable and what's going to be intolerable, what is the message that they're going to have to the world, what rules will they accept and what rules will they reject. And I think there's a lot of kinship there. When you think about politics, not just as horse race, you know, who's up, who's down, this seat, that seat, but really stories of communities trying to wrestle with who they are and what they believe, there's a ton of kinship. And I often find that walking through that door of religion, starting with the religion angle to get into a politics story is hugely fruitful. Thank you so much for your insights on uh, the religion beat and on the politics beat and this crazy election. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. I am so pleased to get to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dove Wilker, the director of AJC Atlanta. Dove, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, thank you, Sefi. At my Shabbat table, we'll be talking about two things, truth and differing opinions. On Wednesday of this week, AJC Atlanta presented former U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson with our National Human Relations Award. Johnny was the only politician in Georgia who served in the State House and Senate, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. He was known as a consensus builder, working across the aisle to accomplish his Republican goals, as well as helping Democrats achieve their goals. Johnny once said, the truth is always what should be told. And the truth and the knowledge of the truth is what everybody should represent, regardless of the consequences of doing it. I have young children, so telling the truth is something that's very important for us. But it's even more important in the political world that we are living in. As you are all well aware, we are in the final stages of the election that keeps Georgia on the front page of the newspapers across the country and at the beginning of a runoff that will decide the future of the U.S. Senate. Regardless of the outcome of the Senate runoff, we clearly live in a divided political society. And now, more than ever, it is important for us to talk with people of different views. My daughters are at an age where it's both easy and difficult to explain the need to listen to people with different viewpoints. And even more important to understand that there can be different ways to get from A to B. As an optimist, I'm already looking at the days after the election to see how we can bring Republicans and Democrats together. But at this time, we need to be focusing on how we talk about people with different viewpoints, whether it's Israel and anti-Semitism. You know, people have different ways of looking at it. But for my children, they know that they are important issues of the day. They attend a Jewish day school. They live in a very Jewish neighborhood, and we attend synagogue weekly. So when it comes to thinking about differing viewpoints, it's important for us to remember that it's okay and that we should be allowed to hear from different people because the only way that we'll be able to fully understand our opinion is by hearing someone else's. Manya, 
What will you be talking about at your Shabbat table? Thank you, Dove. As a mother of young children and a journalist, truth is quite important to our family as well, so I certainly appreciate that message. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about Thanksgiving. In fact, we just got our grocery delivery for next week's feast. But this Thanksgiving will be bittersweet for many people for many reasons. After the last election, many people chose not to celebrate Thanksgiving with their families because of political differences. Someone I know and love made that decision because her brother voted for President Trump. She has since lost him to cancer. Four years later, we find ourselves at this crossroads again, but under slightly different circumstances. Not only are we divided by politics, we are surrounded by a potentially deadly illness that has been politicized. Americans with aging parents and grandparents or ailing friends and relatives find themselves facing a Solomon's choice. Should we gather for what could be our last Thanksgiving with those we love, at the risk of making it their last? For some families, quite frankly, that choice also means enduring insufferable conversations from zealous winners or losers. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, AJC developed a Thanksgiving reader called America's Table. The booklet celebrates the nation's diversity, offers words and rituals to show our gratitude, and talking points to steer back on course any conversations that go off the rails. In other words, it's like a script. Now, I remember when I hosted my first Passover Seder 10 years ago, I was so nervous about getting everything right. But a friend of mine, who actually works here at AJC, told me to think of the Seder as dinner theater and follow the script, otherwise known as the Haggadah. Bringing family and friends together for a Seder is a secondary reason for celebrating Passover, she said. The primary reason is to celebrate the sacred story of the Exodus. Stick to the script, she instructed, and everything else will fall into place. Now, as a journalist, I'm not usually one for talking points or scripts, but from time to time, when you don't want to pour more gasoline of emotions into the flames, they do help. Democracy requires a civil public discourse. It insists that we find a way to talk to each other. If we can't talk to our parents, siblings, or cousins, how can we expect to talk to other Americans about what matters most? Sometimes it's best to stick to a script. So I encourage folks to download AJC's Thanksgiving Reader. Just as we brought our Passover Haggadah to Zoom Seders or Zaders in April, we can bring this Haggadah to our Zoom Thanksgivings or Zanksgivings. Whatever you do, don't skip whatever digital ritual your family develops. Remember, we don't have to sit across the table. In fact, we shouldn't for health reasons. But we should give thanks for the precious moments we have with our families, even if we're looking at them through the miracle of technology. If nothing else, the pandemic has given us that perspective. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what's on your mind? And we'll link, I think, to that Thanksgiving Haggadah, as you put it, America's table in our show notes if people want to check that out. Well, Dove is talking about truth and lies, and Manya is talking about life and death and family. And I'm talking about the similarly weighty topic of hoops. I've never been much of an NBA person. College basketball, for sure. Big Tar Heels fan over here. But when it came to the NBA, eh. The Nets were good and local when I was a kid. The Knicks had one good season, but I was spoiled by being a Yankees fan, so anything less than a championship every year felt like a failure. There are some NBA happenings that have grabbed my attention over the years, for sure. Lots of things to do with LeBron James, the super fun Toronto Raptors run a few years back, and, of course, the career of Omri Kaspi, who in 2009 became the first Israeli ever to play in an NBA game. Here, I'll just note as an aside that I believe that the first Israeli to ever play in a 
WNBA game is actually one of the greatest WNBA players of all time, Sue Bird, who holds Israeli citizenship through her father and who has lived and played in Israel. But let's set Bird and Cosby aside for the moment because there was huge news for Israel out of last night's NBA draft. With the ninth pick of the draft, the Washington Wizards selected Denny Avdia, and with the 47th pick, the Boston Celtics selected Yam Madal. These two Israeli 19-year-olds became the prides of the Jewish state overnight. All due respect to Yam, but I want to say a bit more about Denny, who became the first Israeli player ever taken in the top 10 of the NBA draft. Denny Avdia was born and raised in Israel to a Muslim Serbian father and a Jewish Israeli mother. It was a bit hard to tell, but last night I think I saw him wearing a pin with both the Israeli and Serbian flags on them. For sure the Israeli flag was one of the two. Hebrew is his first language. He said last night on ESPN that he was excited to represent Israel in the NBA. He received an athletic exemption from military service, but when the coronavirus pandemic turned the world upside down this year, he was briefly drafted into the IDF. He spent about two weeks in basic training and says that even that was a good maturing experience for him. Speaking of maturity, so many newly minted professional athletes coming out of college where they were the big men on campus, often far from their parents, get into trouble when they finally get a big league paycheck still far from home and go a little wild. Not Denny. His parents will apparently be moving to Washington with him, which is just the most adorable thing ever and also the most Israeli. This is a huge win for the big Jewish suburbs of D.C., Bethesda, Silver Spring, even up in Baltimore, where I expect there will be spiking interest in the Wizards. And I'm sure I'm not the only American Jew who hasn't thought much about the Wizards in the past, but will now perk up at the mention of the team on SportsCenter each night, hoping for a glimpse of one of my favorite new players, the pride of Israel, Denny Evdia. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.